Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hey there, Emmanuel LaRoche here. Welcome to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in today. Every other week, I interview chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their secrets behind the scenes. This is episode 13. And as usual, you can find the show notes on my website, flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. Today, before I introduce my guest, I would like to put a listener into the spotlight. I haven't done that before, but I received recently a very nice feedback on the Facebook page, Flavors Unknown, and I wanted to share it with you. It came from Christopher Tanner, the director of the Columbus Culinary Institute at the Bradford School in Ohio. And this is what Christopher uh, wrote. Flavors Unknown with Emmanuel is one of my favorite podcasts. I love to share it with our students to inspire them on trends and all the variety there is in our industry. The variety of the podcast is engaging. Thank you so much, Chef, and thank you to all the students who are listening to my podcast. And I hope you will like this new episode today. My guest today is Chef Drew Adams. He oversees the Bourbon Steakhouse Kitchen inside the Four Seasons in Washington, D.C. This is one of the best steakhouse in the country. He just received the Rising Star Award from Star Chefs in December 2018. Of course, Chef Drew Adams will talk to us about meat and steak, but I wanted him to share his fascination with foraging. Hi, uh, Chef. I'm really pleased to have you on the show Flavors Unknown. Uh, we met not too long ago in early December, and since then, uh, I really wanted to have you as a guest. So thank you very much for, for your time and being here. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm very excited about this. It's going to be fun. You grew up in, uh, in Baltimore, so I'm curious about what is the first food memory that you have. So we used to summer down the eastern shore of Maryland. And the first real food memory was just going out and getting soft shells out of the bay in front of our house with my dad and, and cooking them up. And as well as like mussels too, we'd get a lot of mussels and then we'd also crab on the bay as well. So I think first food memory would be that first working food memory was really in seventh grade. I worked for this uh, crab house where we would steam crabs and sell fresh seafood in, in Baltimore. So I think those two are, are, are probably as far back as it goes. <laughs> Okay. So from them, what compelled you after that to, uh, to become a chef? I mean, did you go to um, culinary school? What, what happened after? I mean, so I started working in restaurants kind of in seventh grade. My parents made me get a job. Wow. Um, so That's I really early. Yeah. So I started out selling like live seafood and steamed seafood. And then in high school, I went into more kitchens, worked at a seafood restaurant that was affiliated with the seafood carryout that I worked for. And then I played lacrosse all through high school and my whole entire life year round. So I went to school initially for lacrosse, a small school in, in, in South Carolina. And every weekend we used to go down to Charleston and we'd go down and I had a lot of friends that went to college at Charleston. 
And I just had to be down there. So I figured I'd been cooking when I was younger. I liked it. I enjoyed it. So why not try culinary school? And I ended up going to Johnson and Wales and in Charleston. So I guess there was a lot of party involved as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it was more so for the surfing and and being on the <laughs> beach than the actual school aspect. I did go to class, however. I mean, I vaguely remember uh, my teacher telling me if I if I kept a B plus average, I didn't have to attend class. And uh, one day he saw me. I missed his class, and he was pulling into school while I was leaving on my on my longboard on my skateboard. And I came in the next day. He's like, "Where were you yesterday?" I was like, oh, I wasn't feeling too well. He's like, yeah. And I also saw that the waves are really big. So do you have a good, <laughs> you have a good section out there? I was like, yeah, it was fun. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> But somehow you got some great uh, stuff out of it because, uh, I mean, you, you became a, a chef. So what, what happened? What was like the, the moments that you, know, you took it like more seriously? So I think that, you know, when I was down there, I ended up getting a job. I worked at this bar down there called Johnson's Pub. I, I came on as a cook and then... And a lot of live music, and it was very, uh, it was one of the cooler bars, I think, in, in Charleston at the time. And it was a big industry bar as well. And uh, I used to work six days a week, about 40 hours a week on top of school. And one day the chef quit, and the owners were like, Well, you're the chef now. And I just had no idea what to do. So I was the chef of this bar, I guess, myself and, and another guy. And they would pay us in cash every week, Friday night at 10 o'clock. We would get paid in cash. And so what we would do is we would leave, we would race to get out of work, we'd run over to McCready's where Sean Brock oh, yeah. used to be, and this was before Sean, and we'd go sit at the bar and get the tasting menu. I think that was a big turning point for me because I didn't necessarily understand a lot of it. I knew, I knew that I liked it a lot and I wanted to do that and I wanted to be better. So I left Charleston about a year later, worked for some family friends at, at a little fast, casual, fine dining restaurant in northern Baltimore County in horse country. And and kid I grew up playing lacrosse with, his father was a meat purveyor. So he hooked me up with a job down at uh, Chevy Chase Club in Washington, D.C., working for this master American, master European chef. His name was Joaquin Buchner. He was one of the only dual master chefs in the country at the time. And he was also on the U.S. culinary Olympic team. What was the name of the chef again? Because you, you cut in and out when um, you mentioned him. Joaquin Buchner. Okay. So what was the other, uh, I would say, influential mentors that you, you had, um, you know, throughout your, uh, the beginning of your career? I think one of the people that I got along with the most with, probably with Jeremiah Langhorn at the Dabney. Sometimes in your career, you don't have to talk to people and you know what other people are thinking. It was kind of nice. Like we, I think he's one of the best chefs in the city, if not the best chef in the city. He's done an incredible job for the city and his restaurant is still my favorite in the city. And he's just a phenomenal chef. I think, you know, working with him, it was, it was the hardest job I've ever had in my life. I wanted to be there 100%. And, and I loved working with him and we could easily just bounce ideas off each other. And we knew what the other person was thinking. And, and if I needed help finishing a dish, you know, he would, he'd help me out and then and vice versa as well. So, so what did you learn from him? One of the things that he did was he pulled as much ingredients as he could from within a hundred miles. So I think working within those restrictions and really I think it was more so more accountability, you know, just holding yourself accountable. And, and if you're not happy with it, then fix it. You know, don't just settle for, for anything less than, less than perfect. I mean, you're never going to be perfect, but I think, you know, you always strive for perfection. Any other chefs that comes to your mind? I worked for this French restaurant in DC called Marcel's. And then I left, uh, 
I came on a couple weeks after the opening of the Jefferson Hotel in DC and they opened this super high-end restaurant called Plume. And the chef that came on there, his name was Damon Gordon. He worked for Alain Ducasse, worked for Michelle Rue, worked for some incredible chefs. And at that time in my life, I needed to be more precise with everything I did. And I think that's what he taught me a lot of, you know, precision and, and how to how to make everything look as perfect as possible. And he was just a fun chef. You know, we learned, I learned a long time ago that in order to be good in this industry, you have to really enjoy what you do. And to enjoy what you do, you need to be able to have fun. And I think we had a lot of fun there and that's why we did so well. And now, I mean, fast forward a couple of years and then the restaurant's got a Michelin star. So, so now you are the, um, the chef at um, the Bourbon uh, Steakhouse in uh, the Four Seasons in Washington, D.C., which is interesting because it's, yeah, it's a steak, you know, steakhouse. The steak is in the name of the restaurant. So how do you keep your creativity fresh and still hold true to the uh, imperative of a, of a steakhouse? I mean, I think for us and, and you know, and, and being a cook or a chef in the industry, like we all like eating steaks. And, you know, when it comes to things like that, we just start cooking things, you know, like we like to eat like cream spinach. Like I love eating cream spinach with steak. I think it's incredible. And as far as being creative, What we usually do or what I do, I'll order a lot of ingredients, seasonal ingredients, and I'll just order them without any dish in mind. We just get them in just so we can start that creative process. And I know that I'm not going to waste an ingredient. You know, we're not going to throw anything away. So it kind of forces our hand to use it. And that's how that's how we try and stay creative. That and, and, and going to farmer's markets, you know, and I go to the farmer's market every single weekend. And as far as steaks go, I mean, it's it's very straightforward. One of the things we learned that When people come here, they want to eat steak, obviously. It's in our name. So we we started off when I when I first got here, we started doing we had a lot more entree dishes on. I was putting more entree dishes, but I found that obviously it's it's a steakhouse and I learned that everyone wants to order steak and it's very rare that anyone will get a composed entree dish other than a steak. So we focus more on our fish preparation. So we have two fish dishes on the menu currently. We're gonna ramp it up come this spring. And then All the dishes that we wanted to do turned into like our hot apps. So that's where we kind of get to have fun with it. Our hot apps. And then also we have a slightly different menu at the bar. One of the your first job was to, you know, shake up the menu and, you know, of the steakhouse. So can you describe a little bit how, what was your approach to it and uh, keeping some of the staple dishes, you know, from the menu that you said consumers want to, you know, find when they are in order when they're in a steakhouse versus like new dishes and, uh, you know, do you do things different for lunch or for weekends? I'm just curious. I think when I first started, one of the, one of the things I noticed that the, the menu had about 32 steaks on it. And as the weeks progressed, I came on in July about a year and a half ago. And as the weeks progressed, I noticed that we, we weren't selling a lot of these steaks. And, and unfortunately, we were using them for staff meal or, or giving them down to our, our, or just trying them. We couldn't keep up with it. So I, right off the bat, within the first month, I cut the menu in half as far as the steaks go. So we dropped down to about 18 steaks and then I narrowed it down a little more. Now we fluctuate between like 14 and 16. I felt like that was a good number. That was a good way to keep our costs in line. We use everything that we have and we don't run out of anything. I mean, we've we've gotten down a pretty good system and it works. We essentially just blind tasted all the steaks that we get. I mean, we brought in new purveyors, brought them in side by side. I mean, what I needed was 
essentially I needed a lower end price point, I needed a middle price point, and then I needed a higher end price point. And we put the stakes in those price points that we felt were were the best. So I think that was that was very difficult for us just to narrow that down. And I'm sure some people, you know, got upset about it. There there definitely used to be a lot more stakes offered here. But in order to control it better and really concentrate on the best product we could get, I felt like that was that was the best way to go about it. As for lunch, you know, our lunch crowd, we're in a unique location. We're not necessarily surrounded by a lot of office buildings. I think if we were 10 blocks closer to the city center, I think we do a good lunch business. The hard part for us is that we're kind of further away. So when people come to dine here for lunch, they pretty much have an hour, you know, to eat from more or less almost the time they leave their office till till the time they get back to their office. So we need to be able to get people in and out 30, 40 minutes at the most. So we wanted to put on dishes that we could execute very quickly and things that we could push out just so people could get back to work in time. Did you explore an interesting new, um, I would say luxury, you know, um, high-end uh, steak profile, you know, when you revamped the menu? We did. We were using this company called 7X out of Colorado. We just used their ribeyes. It's a domestic Wagyu. We were just using their ribeyes at the time we introduced. We do a filet of rib, so we do four cuts from them now. So we have a bone-in tomahawk. It's a short tomahawk. It's only about a four-inch bone. That's 48 ounces. Then we do a 14-ounce ribeye. We do a seven and a half ounce uh, filet of rib. And then what we do for the filet of rib is we take all the rib, all the caps off of the uh, ribeye, and then we we put them together and we cut steaks out of that. So um, we actually have a rib cap offering as well, which is arguably the best piece of meat I've ever eaten in my life. And this company, Seven X, is probably the best steak I've ever had. Uh, I don't, I haven't found a, a steak that's ever beat it. Then we introduced a uh, New York strip. Their strips are a little bigger, so we found that cutting, you know, regular strip portions out of it, where you cut it perpendicular to the steak. If if you split it long ways, and then we cut bigger chunks out of it, we call them pavés. So that's on the menu now too. And then we we will bring in a tenderloin to run from them every now and again as well. Then we also brought in. We revamped our wagyu program as well. We started using a lot smaller farms. So we have a wagyu from Kagoshima, Japan. We have three cuts of that. It is a, a strip, a rib cap, and a ribeye. We offer that by the ounce, three ounce minimum, or you can do a trio, which is nine ounces, three ounces of each. And then we brought in another beef called Sunuki. It's from the island of uh, Sotoshima in Japan. They're one of the top producers of olive oil. This is our olive-fed wagyu. We're there's not that many other restaurants in the country, I believe, that, oh, wow. that carry this. So we were, a couple of months ago, we were like one of four. I think a lot of other people have started to carry it, but it's it's a very expensive piece of meat. It's one of the hardest pieces of meat to get in the world right now. Probably one of the most expensive as well. How, how expensive? We sell it for $100 an ounce, three ounce minimum. Oh, wow. Okay. And you said that it's raised like, um, with like, olive oil? So they actually feed the cattle olive yeah. mash oh wow so they take all their leftover olive mash and, and they tried to feed it to the cattle initially but they weren't eating it so they started mixing it with caramel and now it's part of the cattle's main diet and do you taste the difference you get the it's the same mouthfeel as an olive oil you know it just kind of coats your palate you get some grassy some nuttier notes this steak actually eats more it eats more like a steak whereas you know most wagyu kind of melts in your mouth this one's more like 
It's got a lot more texture to it. You know, for me personally, whenever I eat Wagyu, I can only eat like an ounce a little bit. I don't, it's a lot. It's it's very rich. So I, I prefer this steak even more just because it, it eats more like a steak. And then we got one other one. It's called Hokkaido Snow Beef. We were running it a couple months ago. We're going to bring it, or a couple weeks ago, we're going to bring it back. So they raise it in Hokkaido and they raise a, a lot of it during the winter. So it, it puts on uh, uh, a lot of fat for insulation. And so it is almost, it's unbelievable. It's just almost all white, the meat that we get in. So a lot of times we get some of these Wagyu and there's another one called Sendai too that we've got in. So a lot of times you get in these cuts of Wagyu and you'll look at it and it'll be red with white dots or white striations of fat with these two more. So I guess the Sendai it's white with like red dots and like red, like meat striations. It's, it's pretty wild. They're both very, very rich though. And I think we were selling them for about 80 an ounce, three ounce minimum. And did you have the chance to go to, to Japan? We've talked about taking a trip. We've just been so busy lately that it's been hard. So revamping the menu, and, and obviously it's not an easy task. So and I'm curious if you have any tips for people that are, might be listening and are facing the, the same challenge. You always cook the things that you like to eat a lot better than anything else. So we started talking to people about what they like to eat. You know, I opened the menu up to my whole entire staff because at the end of the day, I can... I can make all the dishes I want, you know, but it's, it's, it's our guys that are executing them, you know, so ultimately it falls on them. It's just my job to make sure it's right when it goes out. So I don't need all the credit for anything. I, I just want us to do very well as a team, you know, so we kind of opened up the menu to our whole entire staff and obviously we'll, we'll go through it and, 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 and tweak some of their dishes, but a bunch of my staff have put dishes on the menu that are great dishes, you know, and, and I think that. You know, like one of the things I wanted to put on when I got here that I couldn't believe we didn't have on here, you know, I'm from Baltimore, so I put on a crab cake and it's a very good crab cake. I, I think it's, I'd like to think it's one of the better ones in the city, but, and everyone who has it loves it, but it's things like that. You know, it's, it's when you cook from your heart and you cook things that you like to eat, they always come out that much better. And when you empower your staff to do so as well, you know, then they take pride in it and they, they're never going to let their, their dish go out incorrectly, you know, so I think just empowering your staff and doing the things that you like to eat. So I would like to understand a little bit your creative process and, and where your inspiration, you know, comes from. In the morning, like, like I said before, I'll order a bunch of products and, and just get random things and that kind of forces my hand. So every morning I usually go into the walk-in and see what we have. And I start from there. It's very I can conceptualize a menu, but I always feel like it's it's forced when you do it. Like I have ideas of what I kind of want to do, but it needs to be more so hands-on for me. Like uh, I'll conceptualize menus for for the future and then, you know, when I go to execute them, I end up changing them anyway, so it's it's just easy for me to, you know, start off on the walk-in, you know, on the weekends we go to the farmers markets and then weather permitting, I'm usually out in the woods as much as I can, you know, out there foraging. So I I think my creative process has a lot to do with nature and, and just things that I see outside things that, and, and just going to restaurants, like I said before, that like things that we like to eat, you, you find yourself cooking more so like that, you know? So you're talking about, um, you know, foraging and, and obviously we are going to come back to this topic because it's a very important one for you. But um, you have, um, you know, a dish that use one of um, the, the, the product that you find 
when you're foraging, which is a pow pow. And can you describe a little bit the, this dish and, and as well the, the creative process behind it? You know, one of the cool things about D.C. and Northern Virginia and the Maryland and Western Maryland and up into Southern Pennsylvania, we get this fruit. It's called a pawpaw. It comes out for about three weeks to a month out of the year. It usually starts anywhere from mid-August to beginning of September. But you can, if you're not out there every day looking at it, you can easily miss it. And so what it tastes like, it's kind of like it's a green fruit, probably about inch and a half, two inches in diameter, maybe about three to four inches long, depending. Similar shape to like a jelly bean. And it tastes like mango, banana, avocado. It's, it's the northernmost, it's one of the northernmost tropical fruits in the United States. And over the years, I've just kind of become obsessed with it. So I've been looking at this chef in, in France named Cedric Rollet, incredible pastry chef, but he does all these fruit dishes. Like he does all these dishes that mimic fruit. So he'll do like a strawberry. That's, you know, stuff with a strawberry mousse. He'll spray paint it and it'll look 100% like a strawberry. He'll do a peach dish that looks exactly like a whole peach or a pear or an apple. So we wanted to do something similar. So I got together uh, with my pastry chef. Her name's Chelsea Spalding. And I told her what I wanted. So we started conceptualizing this dish. What we did was we found this company that makes silicone molds. So we got them to make us a jelly bean mold. And then we cast the mold out of white chocolate. And then we stuffed it with pawpaw mousse, a pawpaw chutney, and some candied hazelnuts. And then spray painted it to look like a pawpaw. So green and, and white and, and bits of black. And then we put it on top of some chocolate soil on top of uh, pawpaw ice cream. And we put a nice little stem and a leaf on it as well. And, and we, we went back and forth with this dish for a long time trying to get it down. And, and we finally got it. And then Unfortunately, our season ended here for pawpaws. So we had to pull them from northern Maryland, southern Pennsylvania. And this was the first time that I'd really... Sometimes when we get pawpaw here, they taste a little vegetal. But these ones, the ones that we get here have like an orange flesh, kind of similar, like an orangish yellow, like a banana mango color. And the ones up north are white and they're a lot more vegetal. So flavors of sweet potatoes, squash, a lot more earthy, a lot more on the savory side. So we got them in, we started working with them and we soon, we very quickly had to kind of pull the dish off the menu just because it was, I don't think people wanted to eat oh. that savory for, for dessert. For dessert. Yeah. But is it, there's a way that there's enough, let's say production of popo and and that's, and is it possible as well to preserve it that, um, you know, you can use it um, longer or? Yeah, we tried preserving it. Unfortunately, we didn't get ahead of it that much this year just because it was, it's very hard to get. It's not easy to get. If I'm not going, because I work here at the Four Seasons and because the law states that you're not supposed to really forage anything and bring it in. Fortunately, I have, I have a lot of good relationships with a lot of local purveyors that have foragers. So I just buy a lot of the stuff through them. Uh, whereas at some of the more privately owned restaurants, we would just get like backdoor drops. From local foragers. I mean, just like everyone does, but we just couldn't. It's it's a pain. It's a very tedious task to to process them. They have really big seeds in the center of them. They're the seeds are the size of lima beans, and you got to kind of pick the flesh out from that. And learned last year that if there's any bit of rot that's on the fruit, and when you process it, if, it, if any of that rot whatsoever, any of the oxidized or discolored parts get into the rest of the 
fruit that you've processed, it'll ruin the whole thing. So oh, wow. it takes hours. Like it would take her about two and a half days to make to make this dish. That's interesting to me that, you know, you work at the, the Four Seasons. It's, you have access to a lot of uh, very luxury, you know, ingredients, but still, you know, your forage. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, you said that you are obviously limited because of, of the Four Seasons where, where you work at, but what do you forage for and, and why do you forage? It's a good excuse to get outside. I started doing it a couple of years ago, probably five, six years ago. And the first thing we found were ramps in the spring and I just got excited about it. And I like it because it gives me a lot more appreciation for the product that I'm working with. I really enjoy that part of it. I, I think that, you know, obviously you want to do everything you can to make sure you really showcase that product. And especially when you find it, you know, you find it outside and you, you find it yourself. I think that's incredible. And then the more I learned about it, I think the more I never realized how much edible things were out there. And I, I find something new each year and it's just very fascinating to me. And, and it's kind of like, you know, when you're younger, like everyone wants to be the, the kid on the block that, that has that new toy. And that's, I like to be that kid. You know, I, I like to use things that not that many other people use. I mean, there's very few people that use pawpaws in the city. I mean, you know, come the spring, everyone uses ramps in the city, but there's other things out there like, like ground nettles and like different types of flowers that you can pick. Like, a, like we have this field that I go to in the spring that's covered in violets. I make violet syrups, I make candied violets, you know, we use them as garnishes, stuff like that. So uh, for me, it's, it's the smaller things in life that you really start to appreciate the little things. I mean, obviously, I can get white truffles and, and pretty much we have access to anything, you know, we can we want. And what do you think that so many chefs now are into, um, you know, foraging? I mean, obviously, this is an ancient, you know, approach to things, to products and uh and in between, you, know, you have this all modern sourcing of uh, of ingredients and identical quality, you know, throughout the years and so on. And and you have people I remember in France, uh, Michel Bras, obviously. You have uh, René Redzepi in um, you know in uh, Denmark with uh, Noma. And so, so why do you think now is, there's so many chefs that are into it? Yeah, I just think it's because it's just like I said, you know, these these a lot of these products aren't aren't necessarily readily available you know so if there's something like you know like these we get like wild persimmons here and you can't really buy them like we can go out and buy uh hachia persimmons or fuyu persimmons they don't even compare to the persimmons that we have that grow locally here and, and they, they'll dry on the tree and it tastes like eating it's like eating candy like it's it's unbelievable and it's just the products that just aren't readily available you know i mean there's 50, 60, 100 different things that I can go out in the woods and find that I can't buy from a local purveyor, you know? And I think that's really trying to figure out new techniques and, and, and just use new products. I mean, I'm sure they'll catch on. And, you know, people started cultivating pawpaws now. There's, this, there's a couple farms around here that actually cultivate pawpaws, which is, which is kind of neat. But a lot of these things that no are out in the wild, you can't necessarily cultivate. So how do you make sure that, you know, everything is safe and so on? Because that foraging obviously can be dangerous and not all plants and mushrooms, you know, are good for, for humans. And, and sometimes it could be as well against the law. So, so how, how do you manage that? I mean, we, I have friends that have property around here and up in Baltimore too, where we can go out and look. I mean, you know, it's against the law to, to pick the forage on in national parks. And, and there's a lot of national parks that, that are along in DC and along Maryland, Virginia border. And we'll go out there to learn more about ingredients, but 
I think for me, it's more so if I'm not 100% sure I know what it is, then I'm not going to do anything with it. I mean, there's a couple times where and I don't suggest this to anyone that's listening, but I'll, I'll put some stuff in my mouth and chew it and not ingest <laughs> it, see if it tastes all right. But and you never end up at the hospital? No, I haven't. I mean, I got sick off, uh, I ate some mushrooms when I was a kid and got really sick a long time ago, 30 years ago. But that's the only real time I, I think I've actually gotten sick from something. But if I don't know what it is, and, and if I don't know what it is, I'll go home, I'll, I'll look it up, I'll, I'll try and research it and, and, and see what it is, see if it is edible. I mean, I think the hardest thing for me is I love mushrooms. There are so many different types of species out there that I'm good with like four of them, <laughs> five of them, maybe. And each year I learn about more. I mean, obviously, you know, morels and chanterelles grow here. I actually had some porcinis growing in my front yard this year, which was pretty wild. Woodier mushrooms, maybe uh, chicken of the woods, hen of the woods, stuff like that. I mean, anything, oyster mushrooms, no, wow. anything outside of that, I don't really, I don't really touch. But I mean, fortunately for us here, we have, uh, I have this local forager that I, I will meet up with sometimes and he'll teach me a lot more about a lot of the things that, that grow in the area. And then I keep meaning to join. There's a mycological association here in DC that I, I really, I've been meaning to join for a long time, but they do a lot of uh, foraging walks and a lot of classes on mushroom identification. And I know that you're organizing as well foraging excursions that you call foraging and feasting. Can you talk to us a little bit about this? Sure. So what we do is to anyone, uh, preferably couples, it's about $600 for you come meet us at the hotel. We give you a little snack and a, a nice refreshing uh, drink, usually some sort of green drink, kale, and just something to get the, the blood pumping and the energy. And then we go for a walk. We take a car up to one of my spots and we go out for a walk for about two to three hours, see what we can find. Uh, usually what I'll do is I'll go out the day before just to see how the area is and I'll contact some of my purveyors so we can get in some of those products that we're going to be looking for. And then we come back and we do uh, we do a dinner. We do a tasting menu dinner of things that we found. Oh, so you're, like, you're using really like the, the product that uh, you foraged and then you turn this into um, uh, a menu? Yeah, we'll turn it into a meal. So we'll do a three to five course meal out of it. It's a lot of fun. The hard part, I think, is you know, sourcing those things I know I'm going to find or the things I find the day before, you know, making sure that my purveyors and their foragers can get it. It's a, that's, that's the hard part. And obviously this is seasonal. So when, when do you start this in a season and when do you stop offering those uh, foraging and uh, feasting? I mean, the best part, I mean, the best time obviously is spring. I think we have a couple booked up for the spring already. I would suggest probably late April, early May. That's a really good time. And then going up till about June, end of June, when the berries start coming in. And then it kind of slows down a little for July and August. And then back up in September, October, and weather depending, into November. Okay, I have to put my name on the list here. Yeah, <laughs> I really want too. to uh, experience this. We talked about it last time. I said, just come down. We'll just go out. I'll show you a bunch of things. Yeah, absolutely. Can you give us an example of um, you know some of the, maybe the dish that you have done uh, during those uh, four or five course tasting menu, uh, maybe like the one that you did um, in the fall? Sure. I mean, we, we did uh, uh, one of the dishes that I, I really enjoyed a lot. We got some uh, oyster mushrooms. We made an oyster custard. And then I found some maitake mushrooms as well. So we did some grilled maitake mushrooms with an oyster custard, a little bit of white soy and some chive oil. And it was crunchy and fatty. And it was, uh, it was 
It's one of the best dishes that I've done. It's one of my favorite dishes that I've done. Another dish that we did was the pawpaw dish, which was really cool when it was still sweet. And then we do a lot of like, we have this tartine here. Uh, we do a house-made goat cheese uh, ricotta. And we use all the freshly for, or foraged uh, greens and stuff that we find out. So we'll, we'll do flowers and nettles and it's, and it's seasonal. So it's really cool. And we rotate it every, every quarter, more or less, or, or depending on what we get in for the day. So that was another dish that we had on there as well. And then I had some uh, preserved ramps from last year, from last season. And we did a, a little ramp chimichurri for one of our Wagyu steaks that was delicious. Really helped it out because it cut through a lot of that fat that we talked about previously. So if there's any um, interesting new uh, culinary trends that um, you are exciting, excited about? The fermentation. I mean, I think that's the way to go right now or, or, or preserving. I, I'm really excited about that. And I think when we spoke, we spoke last time, our, our, our mutual friend, Brad Dubois over at, at LA. I mean, he's really kind of, I think, leading leading the charge on that in, in DC. I mean, he's doing some phenomenal things at his restaurant. It's really, it's really awesome. New techniques, new, new ideas, new concepts. And I, I have a lot of appreciation for that. And especially when, when Renee Redzepi and David Silber just released uh, their fermentation book as well. I think a lot of people are starting to go into that, but it's also, it's hard and it's, and it's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Got to be careful. So if there is, um, you know, new chefs or um, people that are into culinary schools that are listening, what would be the, um, the best tip that you, would, you could give someone getting into the industry? I would say, you know, one, you know, know what you're getting yourself into. It's a lot of work. I think like shows like Top Chef and, and while those shows are great and, and a lot of these culinary shows that have come out, they're great shows. I mean... It sometimes gives a false impression of what this job entails. You know, it's not always like everyone wants to be a celebrity chef and it's not like that. You know, you have to, it's a lot of work. I mean, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hours. I mean, I've lost friends, relationships, haven't been able to go to concerts. It's all what you're willing to obviously put into it. You know, I mean, and I think my biggest piece of advice would be not to stay at a job too long, you know, travel more. At the beginning of your career, I think, you know, maybe a year or two is a good time to stay at a job. But after that, I mean, if you can stay there for a year and just keep moving and keep seeing new things, I mean, that's one of my biggest regrets is that I kind of stayed at jobs a little too long. I wish I would have left a lot sooner so I could have seen more. I mean, you know, granted, I think every every step I've taken has been a progressive one and it's always been upwards. I haven't really taken any steps backwards, but... At the same time, I wish I would have seen more. I wish I, I wish I could have gone and spent some time in Europe or in or in Central America. I think travel, 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 travel. You know, save your money and travel as much as you can. So uh, we almost at the end of uh, the interview, Chef, and I, I want to ask you a series of rapid fire questions. So where do you uh, hang out after work in Washington D.C.? Sure. We have uh, this bar right up the street in Georgetown called Clyde's. Uh, we go there a lot. That's where my whole staff goes. So, What would be your favorite food city to uh, visit? I love New York just because it's, it's, it has everything that you want. I think it's, it's a lot of fun to visit. For me, probably Switzerland or, or somewhere in, in, in Switzerland or maybe in Bavaria in Germany. Why Switzerland? I, just, I love the feeling I get when 
I'm there. I love the mountains. I love everything about it. I, I love going there. And in the winter, we took my wife and I took a trip there about two years ago around Germany and on the edge of Switzerland. Uh, I just love being in the mountains. It's just very inspiring. And I mean, I think the best the best meal I've ever had was in was in Vienna. So what is your dirty little food secrets or uh, something others might be surprised that that you eat? I, I eat junk food all the time. You know, we, like, we, like what? I, I love French fries. Okay. I eat a lot of French fries. I love chicken wings. I think the people that know me know that I, I love that. I mean, that's that's pretty much all I eat. I've been trying to eat healthier. That's my New Year's resolution. But French fries and chicken wings are my go to. What is your favorite cookbook? Ooh, good question. Hmm. I, I think, oh man. Favorite cookbook? I think the one that's had the most impact on my life and the one that I tell everyone to get is the French Laundry Cookbook. It's one of the first cookbooks I got. I've read through it a hundred times. Tried to make almost pretty much every dish or every everything in that book. And I think that's the one that had the most impact on my life. And then I bought Alinea oh, wow. shortly after that or a couple years after that. And I didn't know what the hell any of that stuff was. So it took me a while, but then I started to appreciate that a lot more as well. So I, I think I think French Laundry Cookbook. I think every every cook, every young cook should. I tell everyone in my kitchen to buy that book right away. Can you give us the main reason why Washington D.C. should be considered a culinary destination for traveling foodies? We're different in the sense here that we're we're just such a close knit community here. A lot of my friends obviously work in the industry here, and and I think for us it's more so. We just enjoy making people happy, and it's all of us. You know, it's it's the whole group that was at Star Chefs. Um, I've never seen a stronger group of of chefs in the city. We just have fun. You know, we have a lot of fun here, and and we really, we really, really enjoy making people happy. And I think that at the end of the day, that's that's what you want out of any experience. You want to see your guests, you know, walk out of the restaurant with a bigger smile on their face than when they walked in. And at the end of the day, you need to make sure that your employees are happy first. And I think that's one of the things that we all focus on is making sure that our employees are happy first so that they can, they can cook the best they can for the wonderful guests that come in. I mean, with the way that this city's grown and the amount of chefs that have come in. And, and right now, it's a younger group of chefs. I, I'd say we're all pretty much late 20s to mid to maybe late 30s. Whereas when I first started here, it was a lot of mid 30s and above. So it's, we all just want to make food better. You know, we all, we all want to make people happier. And, and we have, we just all have great relationships where we, you know, I can call any of those people and, and ask them for advice anytime I want, you know. And, and that's what's, that's what's so great about the food scene in the city and the people that work here. So. Great. And um, definitely the Bourbon Steakhouse is on my list to uh, come back to. And, and I will put my name on, uh, uh, you know, your foraging and, and uh, fasting excursion for sure in 2019. Thank you very much for being a guest on, uh, on the show, um, Flavors Unknown. I really appreciate it that you spend time with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening today. No worries if you were not able to write down some information that our guest was talking about, because you can find all of those in the episode show note on flavorsunknown.com. If you have suggestion about who would be great to have as a guest on the show, please answer the question in the comment section of the contact page on the website flavorsunknown.com. I will do my best to contact them. 
and try to see if I can get them on the show. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.